That's a tremendous song. Behold our God seated on his throne. You know, it, it reminds me, it's been well, at least in my life, over 30 years where I have been serving the Lord and upwards towards 38 probably where I've been studying full-time at undergrad and then even at graduate school. And I feel like I've seen so much and so many different purposes uh, for the church that it reminded me this week of when I was growing up in the San Fernando Valley in Canoga Park. And I, I must have been before 10, I would ride my bike to this store, and I think at that store there were baseball cards that I wanted to buy, and they had this game in the store. Some of you will remember these things. Do you remember it? Raise your hand if you do a pinball machine. Do you remember a pinball machine? Uh, I bet you there's a, there's a crowd in here who doesn't even know what that is, but I, I got uh, my first taste of a pinball machine, maybe for a dime or a quarter, I don't know what it was, and you know how that works where you send the ball up the side and then you got these paddles on the side and the ball comes down and your effort is to keep hitting that ball up the pinball machine into pockets, into things that spin into points and into totals and you know the goal is to not let it go out the side and not come shoot straight down the middle and that ball is ever careening off all of these corners. And, and I think as I've spent these last 30-some years looking at the life of the church, giving my life to it, I sometimes think that the church at large is like that pinball machine with that pinball careening off different corners. I mean, over the years, I've heard so many different things as to what the purpose of the church is or what the purpose of the church is stated to be. And I suppose that for all these purposes that I've heard, there's biblical passages that could be put alongside of all of these. Some have suggested, for instance, that the great noble purpose of the church is to evangelize the lost. And of course, the scripture used at that point is, for some, Matthew chapter 28, to go, you know, basically into all the world and make disciples. And certainly that is a biblical priority, but for some churches, the evangelization of the lost becomes their entire focus to, to make disciples. And seemingly, sometimes, in certain ministries, in certain churches, and even in certain nonprofits, sometimes they forget the, the, the furtherance of that command where Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I have, what? Commanded. And so that purpose uh, gets blunted, if you will, by looking at one part of it, but blunting the other part so that some people, all their efforts go to the reaching and the evangelization of the lost, which is certainly noble, certainly one of the many dimensions of the church. But when you begin to focus on one, you begin to blunt some of the other teaching of Scripture. 
Still others, not just make disciples reaching the lost, others have made the purpose of the church making disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, and there obviously is a command that is the verb there to to make disciples. And some people take that so exclusively that sometimes I would say that the purpose of the church is lost. Sometimes in that paradigm only, there is no purpose of the church. In fact, I've asked and I've served on a number of boards where that becomes their noble effort to make disciples, not only reach the lost, but make the disciples And they spend almost exclusively all their time in the Gospels. Certainly noble. We spent nearly four years in the Gospel of John. But I've asked them if their paradigm for ministry ever went past the Gospels into the other books that were written, namely the epistles that begin to describe the church. In fact, some ministries have their whole effort to make disciples, and the church is completely absent from anything in terms of their purpose. Um, Others suggest that the purpose of the church is to mature the saints. And obviously, we have in our statement that we're here in one of those purposes to equip the saints, Ephesians 4. And so the purpose of the church is equipping But if you're not careful, even there, you can begin to forget the command stated by our Lord in the Gospels to be salt and light and to penetrate the world in which we live. Still others would say, and maybe in some churches today, they start on this premise that the purpose of the church is worship. And what I mean by that is that it's all built around the music. It's all built around worship and certainly worship and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We just did that is vital. But if you make that your entire, entire focus and separate that from truth, then it could become very shallow. I mean, really what becomes confusing in the midst of these options is that it would appear that the church has several purposes, not just one, and there are these various commands. I mean, the problem arises that from the multiplicity of purposes is that it never really clearly delineates what the Bible is so clear in articulating. And really what is needed is one unified mission, one unified goal. Certainly, Uh, Maybe in the next weeks, across the country, uh, football will be starting again, even though high school football just finished out here. At least the NFL will be starting again. And when they go into their summer camps, they go in, at least the top teams, with one purpose. Just one purpose. The team practices, the team plays The team practices again, they play, they scrimmage, but they do so with one goal in mind. All of it is focused, all of it is energized to one grand purpose, and of course, that's to win the what? The Super Bowl. I mean, that's the objective, and if they don't win, then they haven't achieved their goal, and when NBA teams 
I guess, come up short even as of this week. The Lakers, they're, in, uh, they're retooling, if you will, because that is ever the goal. That is the objective. And so I ask you again, if you're here as you listen and maybe you're new, is there a biblical mandate? Is there a biblical purpose for the local church? I have sometimes felt growing up watching some of the Disney, Disney movies with my kids especially the movie called Jungle Book. Do you remember at the end of Jungle Book, it, it pans to the end where there's that fire in the forest, and it kind of pans out to these vultures with their English-British accent sitting up on a tree, and they're paired there with long hair with their English accents, and they're asking the question, what you want to do. And the other one says, I don't know what you want to do. And then the other one says, you keep asking me what you want to do, what you want to do, what you... and then it goes back and forth. And at times I felt like that's what happens in the local church. Sometimes the leaders aren't even quite sure as to the noble purpose. In fact, what's very sad, and I'll be somewhat brief here, is that many pastors and many leaders have turned to the world for answers. One pastor said this. Here's what he argued. He said, quote, people think that we're a church, and because we're a church, maybe we shouldn't market. He said, but any organization, secular or otherwise, he said, if you're going to grow, you've got to get people to buy into the product. That's what he said, end of quote. Buy into the product. Now, I suppose just talking with you, of course, we have the greatest product, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but for many people, when they say buy into the product, that means change the product, reshape the product, dress the product up, make it a little bit more accessible, in fact, replace the product so that Jesus becomes a different caricature than the one revealed in the Scripture. When I think about that line, when that guy said, you've got to buy into the product, I'm thinking of the Lord Jesus Christ to the rich young ruler who came running, who came bowing, who came humble before Jesus and said, what must I do to be, what? Saved. And he told him a few things, then at the end of that conversation, he said, sell all your possessions, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And I think we know what happened is the rich young ruler went away grieved because he was one who owned much property. Far from trying to sell something, Jesus was trying to elicit something greater out of that young man. In Luke 9, it says, if you're going to follow Christ, you can't look back. Luke 14 says that if you're going to follow Christ, you've got to count the cost. You've got to deny yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. And Jesus said, you better love me more than your family. So when I think about this idea of that thought there that you've got to get people to buy into the product, I see the opposite, opposite tone, excuse me, of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Another best-selling author said, I believe that developing a marketing orientation is precisely what the church needs to do if we are to make a, if we are to make a difference in the spiritual health of this nation for the remainder of this century. He said that at the end of the 20th century. He said, my contention, quote, based on careful study of the data and of the activities of the American churches is that the major problem plaguing the church is its failure to embrace a marketing orientation in what has become a market-driven environment. It's quite a statement from at least what some would call a leading guru named George Barna that we need some kind of, he said, in marketing orientation in what has become a market-driven environment. And again, there's certainly nothing wrong with marketing you men and women who own businesses. You could have a phenomenal product, but if you don't have a way to distribute that, then somehow your product, though it be great, isn't going to be filtered, if you will, into the hands of those who need it. But again, when he talks about marketing orientation, I think he means dressing up the gospel, give people what they want, the consumer is king. And all of a sudden, we're all over the map as to what the purpose of the local church is. You say, well, just how far does that thinking go? Well, I read this article in the Wall Street Journal, and here was the highlight. This is in the Wall Street Journal of how far will the church go in competing with Hollywood. And it described this article in the Wall Street Journal, a large church in the United States that has installed a half million dollar special effects system that can produce fire and smoke and sparks and laser lights in the auditorium. And it goes on to say that the church sent staff members to study live effects at Bally's Casino in Las Vegas. Now listen, I, I could go for a long time on stuff like this. The pastor ended one of his services by ascending into heaven via the invisible wires that drew him up out of the sight while the choir and the orchestra added a musical accompaniment to the smoke, fire, and light show. Can you imagine that just happening to me just up into the rafters? And then the article said it must just be, it was just a typical Sunday show for the pastor. Quote, he packs his church with special effects as cranking up a chainsaw and toppling a tree to make a point. And it's the biggest 4th of July fireworks display in town and a Christmas service with rented elephant, kangaroo, and zebra. The Christmas show features a hundred clowns with gifts for the children. I mean, you, you would be surprised what goes on in the nature of the local church. And so is there a noble purpose for the church? And I, what I want to share with you today and even in the weeks to come is that I believe the scriptures teach that there is one ultimate defining purpose for the life of the church 
And I want us to see this glorious purpose in the book of Ephesians. Will you open up to Ephesians chapter 3? Ephesians chapter 3. And we're coming to the end of chapter 3. And just these last two verses where it says in 3.20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. We come here in the context to Ephesians chapter 3 to Paul's prayer. And his prayer has turned into a a, doxo- a doxology. A doxology, you've heard that word, is just the, the concept of praise to God. In fact, sometimes we would sing that song known as the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. This here in 320.21 is a doxology. And it, it comes at the close of this amazing prayer for power. And so this doxology is set in the context of prayer. And we've been working our way through these five elements, at least we come to the fifth one today. We look first at the premise of his prayer is for this reason. I think you'll see that on the slide. There it is. Then we looked at the posture of his prayer. Paul said, I bow my knees. The person of his prayer is before the Father. And then he gets to the petitions, and there were three purpose clauses in the original language that he prays for indwelling strength, for comprehensive love, and he prays for complete fullness. He prays there for indwelling strength that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Then he prays for a comprehensive love. In other words, that we would know something experientially, not just by way of knowledge, but something experientially of the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses understanding. This is how we pray. These were, this is what Paul prayed for. In other words, as he wove us through those opening three chapters, he gets down to the end of this chapter three, at the end of the first half of the book, and this is what he's praying for. Look at verse 19. He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, that your life would not only have Christ dwelling in you, that your life would be able to grasp something of the love of God that we sang even this morning, the love of God, which some people said is the greatest song ever penned in the human language, what we just sang, the words and the lyrics of that song, praying that we would grasp something of his magnanimous love for us. And then he ends with a brilliant statement Verse 19, that we'd be filled up to all the fullness of God, that our character would take on the characteristics of God. You say, well, how does that work? Well, remember I pointed in 432 where it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And here's the example, as God in Christ 
forgave you. So what God did in Christ for us, we are to do for one another. We're to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another. And then remember, look at Ephesians 5.1. Therefore, be imitators, it says, of God. And so here is, if you will, Paul's prayer. That Christ would be at home in your heart. That we would understand something of the love of God. That our life would begin to take on the fullness of God. And then the question would come is, can God actually answer that prayer? And the answer would be, yes. And here is why. Because he burst out in praise to God in this doxology. In fact, pick it up this morning in verse 20, where he says, and we touched on this, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He begins here to call on, fifthly, the praise of his prayer. And he's looking at this fifth and final component through kind of, I call it just two attributes. He's looking at the power of God, and he's looking at the glory of God. First, the power of God. He says, now to him who is able, and we noted who is that, that is God the Father, the one to whom we bow our knee, to him who is able, and the thought was able, if you will, powerful, omnipotent, to carry out those petitions. The one we pray and praise is the one who is able to do He mentions that idea there, the idea of to make, to cause, to bring about, to accomplish these petitions. In other words, if he raised Jesus Christ from the dead, in fact, look back in chapter 1, verse 19, just for a second. He's praying in 119 of Ephesians that we would understand what is the immeasurable, this is his prayer, greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, how great was that might, how great is that power, that he worked in Christ, did God, when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And then it says in verse 22 that he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, God is able. He's able to do. He's able to put Jesus Christ, raise him from the dead, far above all rule, far above all authority, far above all power, even demonic power, far above all dominion. He put all things under subjection uh, under his feet. He made Christ his head over the church. That's power, is it not? And so he's praying, if you will, to God the Father who has the power to answer these petitions. In fact, not only is he able to do, but look at 3.20 again. It says that he's able to do far more abundantly. In other words, he's able to do an extraordinary degree, is the thought. To infinitely above even anything you've seen. In other words, God's capacity in your prayer life exceeds your capacity to even ask or think Or even imagine, he could even do beyond what you think and imagine. 
Now, what's amazing here is look at the end of verse 20. He said, according to the power at work within us. Now, that is an amazing phrase because that power was at work in Christ. And if you're in Christ and you've been given the Spirit of God, that work is in us. He's working His power. And so maybe I just ask you, have your circumstances, your trial, your health issue, your financial issue paralyzed you that you have refrained from talking to God in prayer? In other words, here he gets to the petition, he gets to the praise, and he's saying God is so powerful that he could accomplish that prayer request in your life. So he praises God for his power, and secondly, he praises God for his glory. Look at that scripture, and you've seen this before, you probably know it by heart, but he says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever, amen. What a statement. Here, let me say this to you after my introduction, you could see it there, to him be glory in the church. Beloved, let me just say just succinctly to you that the fundamental purpose of the church is the glory of God. Paul says it right there. To him, to the one who's able, to the one who's able to do, to the one who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine, to him, to God the Father, here's the thought, be glory in the church. Here is the noble purpose. Here is the reason the church has been called into existence. Go back just for a moment. Let me remind you. Look back in Ephesians chapter 1. Do you remember there that he talked about the work of the Father? Then he talked about the work of the Son. Then he talked about the work of the Holy Spirit. He gets done with the work of the Father, at least in four. He says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, that we should be holy, blameless before him. In love he predestined us as adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This he did, verse 6, to the praise of of his glorious grace. God chose you to the praise of his glory, but here it's not just glory, it's glorious grace. If the Father chose you, and you're here this morning, and he called you out, adopted you, placed you into his family for this unique purpose to be holy and blameless, but that he did to the praise of his glorious grace. In fact, look at verse 7. He goes on where he talks about in verse 6, at the end of 6, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in whom, now speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Look down at the work of the Son in verse 12, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be, here's the purpose clause, to the praise of his glory. The Father redeemed you in eternity past 
to the praise of his glorious grace. The son accomplished your salvation through his redemption by his blood, granting you the forgiveness of sin that you might be to the praise of his glory. But then all of the Trinity is at work, not just the Father, not just the Son, but even the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. In whom, or in Him, you also, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, there it is again, to the praise of His glory. So, beloved, the fundamental purpose of the church is the glory of God. To Him, follow the language here, to Him be the glory in the church. Now, what exactly is the glory of God? I'll say more on this next week. There's different words that speak of glory. The glory, at least in the New Testament, is the Greek word doxa. The the word in Hebrew used for glory in the Old Testament is the Greek word kavod. But the glory of God, to Him be the glory in the church, is, is when it speaks of glory there, it's speaking of God's honor is what the word means. God's greatness, God's splendor, God's majesty, all that belongs to God. In fact, next week, that word kavod in the Hebrew in the Old Testament literally meant weight, and it meant heavy. And when it's applied to someone's character, it speaks of somebody's weight, if you will, and heaviness, and certainly it's that of God that his character and his being is is honorable its greatness its splendor its majesty all that belongs to God God's glory beloved is the display of his worth another way to say it is his glory is the display of his attributes it's the display of his character Now, what's interesting, when you think of to him be glory in the church, this is why some theologians have a tough time saying that glory is one of God's attributes. And the reason why is it's like describing beauty. How do you describe beauty? You you could describe it. How do you describe God's character? His glory is so far above us. His person is so great. His person, his character is so splendid, if you will, so majestic that God's glory is the sum totality of all that he is. It's the totality of his character. And so his glory is the crushing weight of his holy character. His glory is the blinding light of his divine presence. Glory, if you will, is what makes God, God. Now, the Bible speaks of God's glory in two ways. Let me just begin here, okay? It it speaks of God's intrinsic glory, number one, and this is a generalization. And then secondly, the Bible talks about God's ascribed glory. So well, what, are, what is that? Well, his intrinsic glory, first, I would say this. We do not give, you understand this, 
God His glory. We do not add to His glory. God, beloved, is glorious because God is God. And when you just begin to unpack His glory, His glory is intrinsic. In other words, God's glory is who He is. Let me say it another way. If men and angels had never been created, God would still be intrinsically glorious. God's glory is who He is. We do not give God His glory. We can't take away from His glory. His glory is intrinsic. In other words, if no one ever gave God honor, if no one ever gave God praise, God would still be glorious by virtue of who He is. That is intrinsic glory. Intrinsic to his character, intrinsic to his being, intrinsic, if you will, to the brilliance of his splendid light. In fact, when we were singing that song, Behold Our God, obviously it reminds us of Isaiah 6, where they're in the temple, and the temple is shaking, and the seraphim are crying out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his, what? Glory. You tend to think it would be holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his holiness. But he said the whole earth is full of his glory because his glory is an expression of all that he is in his holy character. So that's intrinsic glory. Let me compare it with human glory. Human glory is ascribed to a person from outside his or her being. So for the sake of an illustration, I pastored in Chicago. Michael Jordan had human glory. I suppose still does. There was still a time when I was in my basement uh, for game six, and we had a bunch of friends over at the house, and he made what is known as the shot in game six against the Utah Jazz. He cut over to the key, crossed back over, Byron Russell went by him, and he pulled up and he hit what some would call in a very trivial way in my mind, the shot, and he was given human glory, okay? He's given glory, and I, maybe I've mentioned this to you before, that after he retired, they put a statue outside of the United Center of him, uh, you know, a bronze statue, and the first time, the first week it came out, people from all over Chicago came, and some were even bowing down to it, going like this. And I, and I think they meant it jokingly, but I'm not sure how many people actually were joking. You say, well, Scott, what is that? That's not intrinsic glory. That's glory that comes from the outside. That's glory that comes from some kind of physical feat, okay? That's glory for some external achievement. But that's not intrinsic glory. When we speak of God, His glory is bound up in who He is. It is not granted to Him. His glory, if you will, is not granted from an outside source. He is glorious because that is who he is at the core of his being. He's intrinsically glorious. He is, in Psalm 24, the king of glory. 
So there's intrinsic glory, intrinsic honor, greatness, splendor, majesty, as the scripture reveals it, because that's who God is. But secondly, there is what we call ascribed glory. And ascribed glory is our response to the display of God's power. This is what 321 is calling for. In other words, God is putting his glory on display. Specifically, here in the context, his power. He's praying that we'd have power in prayer for inner strength for comprehensive love of Christ, for the complete fullness of the character of God. And we respond by ascribing glory to Him. So beloved, though you can't add to His glory, nor can you take away from it, you do have a responsibility as a believer to ascribe praise for who He is and what He has done. Let me show you some text. Look over at Psalm 29, okay? Let me just show you this here. Maybe you've seen this psalm. It's placed in uh, a song as well as a hymn. But it says in Psalm 29, verse 1 and 2, Ascribe to the Lord, you know, declare, give, O heavenly beings, Ascribe to the Lord in Psalm 29, 1, glory, there's our word, and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, what? Do His name. In other words, God's great. And so the psalmist says that for you as a church, for, for me, we need to ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name. Worship the Lord, and here again is the attributes of God, in the splendor, it says here, of holiness. In other words, because he's intrinsically glorious, listen beloved, your life ought to be a life of praise, return to God for the glory, if you will, that is due his name. And whenever you see that phrase, do his name, maybe one day I'll take you through that. His name is associated with his character. Because his name is bound up in his character and his character is revealed in his name. And here the psalmist is saying, ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Worship the Lord. Look over just for a moment. Ken read it this morning. Interestingly, because I had it picked, look over at Psalm 96. Psalm 96, and think about this reading that he gave in our context here um, of giving glory to God. Psalm 96, it says, what, what a great psalm, Ken. Thank you for reading that. Oh, sing to the Lord. In other words, it gives expression, if you will, a new song. Sing to the Lord, and then this canvassing of all the earth. Sing to the Lord, and then this phrase, bless his name, because his name is his character. Tell of his salvation day by day, and declare his, here it is, glory, his kavod, his weight, 
his honor, his majesty, declare his glory among the nations. And then watch what's being revealed here. His marvelous works amongst all the peoples. In other words, his glory is bound up in his attributes. For great, verse 4, is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord, and now he moves into his power, into his sovereignty, has made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, his attributes. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth, uh, or, or families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, here it is, the, it says glory and strength, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Verse 8, bring an offering and come, it says, into the courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. In other words, you're ascribing glory. You're ascribing honor, splendor, majesty, dignity, reputation to the character, into the name of God. I pray that that's how we would come into this building. Right? Because to Him be the honor. To Him be the splendor. To Him be the majesty. In fact, look down at the end of Psalm 96, where it says, before the Lord, in verse 13, for He comes, for He comes, and then here's another attribute. To judge the earth, he will judge the world, here's another one, in righteousness, God is righteous, and the peoples in his faithfulness. But what a statement there, ascribe to the Lord, glory do his name. I mean, you know that this is the desire for God for the whole globe. When he made us in his image, That image was marred because of the fall of man in Genesis 3. But he made us to praise him. He made us to honor him. He made you to give him glory. To give him praise. To give God glory that is due his name. I can tell you about a few people who didn't give him glory. Herod in Acts chapter 12, had Herod Day. And as he began to speak in Acts 12, they said, it is the voice of God and not a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God, what? The glory. He took the honor for himself. He took the praise for himself. And he was struck down. He was eaten by worms. And he breathed his last. God made you, junior higher, high schooler, father, mother, single. He, He made you to the praise of his glory. You can't add to his intrinsic glory. Praise God, you can't take away from his intrinsic glory. But you and I are called to ascribe him the glory due his name. Look over just for a moment in the book of Romans. Let me show you this 
in Romans 1. These words have captured my heart on God's glory. To Him be the glory. I think you're aware, aware of Romans chapter 1 on God's wrath on the unrighteous. Where it says, for, well, go to 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Why? From heaven against all ungodliness and unforgiveness of men. Watch this. You say, because they're not called. No, it's not what it says. You say, because they're not elect. No, that's not what it says. It says, it's, it's there of all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what does it say? Suppress the truth. God made people to give him glory. And the only thing that rebelled against God is angels and men. And rather than give him glory, they're suppressing the truth. You say, Scott, what does that mean? Truth is coming up into everybody's life and heart and conscience. All that he made. And what people are doing is suppressing and holding down the truth. It reminds me when I was a, a young boy and my dad told me to take out the trash. And in those old days, they had those metal cans and sometimes the cans would fill up and I'd have to get into the can and jump on it and then take the lid and push the trash down with the lid and it just kind of kept merging back up. I think that's a picture of what fallen man is doing. The truth is coming up, but... They're pushing it down. Look at the scripture. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, how? His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made that they are without excuse. Now watch this. For although they knew God, they did not, what does it say? Honor him. They did not, that's our Greek word doxa, ESV, it translates honor here. They did not, here's what it says, honor or glorify him as God or give thanks to him, but they're futile but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise. They became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here is where our society is. That rather than honoring God and rather than glorifying God, They've exchanged that which is natural for that which is unnatural. So here, man needs to give praise to God. And I'm just saying to us as we think of to him be the glory in the church, remember this, and I'll just share it with you. You could write it down in Luke 17. Remember when the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 17 healed 10 lepers, that as they were walking back, their skin became instantly clean, and then only one of them came back to give, what, glory to Christ. Only one came back to say thanks. Only one came back to give him praise, or to give him honor, to give him doxa. Jesus said, if the rocks, if you don't cry out, even the rocks will cry out. I think I'm trying to say that our expression as a church to God and to his greatness is to him be the glory, to him be the honor, to him be splendor and majesty. Now, I'll finish here and then we'll pick it up, but look back 
in one element of this in Ephesians. And it stuns me. You say, how so? Well, I don't know if you've ever caught this before. 321, we've read it. To him be glory, where? In the church. You say, well, Scott, why is that stunning? Here's why. It's the only place in the scripture that says that. Every other doxology directs God's, if you will, glory to be praised, if you will, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is mentioned here in the church and in Christ Jesus. But in 1 Peter 4.11, it says, Whoever speaks is the one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. That in everything, this is a normal doxology, in everything that God may be glorified in, it says, and through Jesus Christ. Here's the only place in the whole New Testament. It's the only doxology that specifically refers to the, cha- to the church as the place for the glory of God to be showcased. The glory of God to be put on display. And his glory is to be found today in the church. Obviously, he saved us. He redeemed us. He revealed to us the mystery And so, beloved, let me just say it again. The fundamental purpose of the church is the glory of God. In other words, His glory resides in the church. His glory resides in the hearts of His redeemed. His glory resides in our hearts where Christ dwells, where God's character is revealed. The church exists to, we would say it this way, glorify God. I think we understand we can't add or take away intrinsically from who he is, but we are with one voice to glorify God and ascribe glory to him. So let me just put this back together here. Our church is not about us, amen? Our church is not about politics. Our church is not about, by itself, music. Our church is not just about ministries. Our church is not primarily about programs. Our church is primarily about the glory of God and to his name be the glory, amen? That's Psalm 115. And so the church, beloved, is the theater that is to put on display his glory. It's to be the place where his character is seen, his presence is revealed, and his glory is beheld. Listen, evermore, when our church started, we made it about God. We made it about his gospel. We made it about his word. Listen, I'm not fighting for what the purpose of the church is. The purpose of Grace Church of the Valley is we exist to what? To glorify God. We exist to reveal his name. We exist to reveal his character. We exist, if you will, to sing and worship and exalt his name and his splendor and his dignity and his reputation and his glory. That is the noble purpose of the church. Once you get that right, then the other things begin to fall in line. Listen, we'll pick it up next week. Would you bow your head with me even now?